But today we're going to be spending time in God's Word discussing a really important topic, a topic, frankly, that I think is often not uh, addressed, especially in churches that are primarily made up like ours of people that are married, a lot of us with kids. And that is, we're going to talk about marriage and singleness with an emphasis on singleness, because that's what Paul talks about here in this passage, for the glory of God. I am aware, as a married person now for going on two decades, that it's easy to only think about people that are just like me. And as we do these series from time to time on the Christian family, we talk about what is sort of the norm, what is perhaps more predominant. And in our churches, in this church, predominantly most people are married, and also most of those people have had or currently have children. And therefore, because of that, a lot of our focus is upon those things to those people. And the Scriptures address both of those parties, those who are married and those who are married with kids. And as we have in the past, we've spent time talking about, talking to those people in this short series so far. But I'm aware that there are those who are not married. And that could be that they have never been married or are no longer married. And the Scriptures address you too. Now, I run the risk in a smaller church like ours in addressing such a thing to make some people feel singled out. But as I look at you today, you are spread out, those of you who are currently in this state, either having been married in the past and no longer being married or having never been married. And so don't feel singled out because I'm not necessarily thinking about any one of you in particular. But I do want us as a people holistically to glorify God And therefore, whether you are married or whether you are not, we all have the responsibility to live for the glory of our Creator and our Redeemer. And the Scriptures have things to say to you today if you have never been married or are no longer married. Likewise, and this is very important because those of you who are married and listening to me today, you may think, finally, I get to sit in a service and I get to check out. No. Because you need to learn how to think about this as well. In fact, this passage addresses you as well. And no matter what, whether you are married or whether you are not married, you have the responsibility to live together in understanding and in peace and harmony. I'll give you an analogy. It's not a perfect one, but it's the best I can come up with from my own experience. I remember after Whitney and I were married, we were attending a church while I was in seminary, and we didn't have kids yet. We were in a state of life where we were incredibly busy. We had like three dimes to claim as our own, and all those dimes were going to pay for grad school because we didn't want to go in debt. So we were incredibly busy, and we didn't have much money. And so therefore, because of those things, and more importantly, because we had just gotten married, we weren't ready to have kids yet wasn't our time yet. And so we went to a church that was a lot like this one. It was mostly made up of people like in their 30s and early 40s with young children. And I remember, though I didn't feel this as much as my wife, we would come in Sunday after Sunday, and we were in an old traditional church, so it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And every time we would come in, I remember distinctly feeling, and again, especially through the eyes and heart of my wife, 
that we didn't quite fit in there because we didn't have kids yet. Often people would get together in their little clusters of people with their child-rearing experiences, and they would have discussions, and we felt left out often. It took us a while to, to learn that that just wasn't our calling at that time and to begin to deliberately meld, M-E-L-D, meld together in the body despite our differences. But there was something about our lifestyle that didn't quite fit into the predominant makeup of that church. That has happened here for some of you who do not yet have children, or at least perhaps you remember it from the past. And I think that perhaps is even more acutely true for those who are no longer, or at least not right now, married. It's sometimes difficult, I would say often very difficult for those who are not married currently, to feel that they completely fit in. And therefore, for those of us who are, which is the predominant majority of this church and most churches in our country, we need to learn to understand the perspectives and life experiences, feelings, of those around us that we might live together with them in love and harmony. And so therefore, this is not just for those who are currently single. This is for all of us. To whom is Paul writing here? Well, obviously Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. His first letter to the church in Corinth is a difficult letter to read. It's clear from this book that Paul is perhaps close to being irritated with his people, but more accurately, he's very troubled by many of the choices that they have made. We won't take time to chronicle all of those today, but he begins by talking about their divisiveness. They were a divisive church. They were a church that had put up with a lot of sin, even unspeakable sin, sin which which should have disqualified certain members from even participating in the assembly. They had, they had allowed them to remain in. We know from chapter 6 that some of them were still struggling with the culture around them, particularly in regard to sexual immorality. They fought over whether or not they should worship in certain ways. They, they fought over their giftedness and how those gifts that God had distributed to each of them worked together. They struggled over even fundamental issues of the gospel, like the resurrection. This was a church that that behaviorally, morally, and doctrinally did not have all of their ducks in a row. And so Paul wrote to them a relatively long letter for the Apostle Paul, addressing many of the errors that were going on in the church and trying to bring them back to not only doctrinal but moral change. Paul also had most likely received a letter from them asking him certain questions. And though he wasn't their on-site pastor, so to speak, he was one to whom they looked. He was indirectly, at least, responsible for the planting and the oversight of this church And in that age where the apostles still were so instrumental in the planting and oversight of churches, they wrote to him, most likely, asking him certain questions because now that Christianity had been introduced to their particular culture and their city, they wanted to know how to work through certain issues. So they asked him questions. And I think that's where we find ourselves now in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in this chapter, and in particular the verses we will find ourselves today, 
we will discuss this one issue, and that is that we are to, in our marriages or in our singleness, which will be the tone mostly for today, the emphasis of today, we are to, in our marriages or in our singleness, live for the glory of God. Now, you might have just checked out because you know that all of life is supposed to be about that, but this passage in particular clarifies to us what that is to look like, so we will explore it together today for our mutual benefit. In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then in quotes, if you have the ESV, it says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. As best we can understand, and most modern scholars would say, and I think this is in keeping with the text, they were thinking that because of what was going on in their culture, and in light of what Paul had taught them, that it was better if they did not have sexual relations anymore. And perhaps because of that, that they shouldn't be married anymore. So they want to know from Paul, in light of our culture, and their culture was to use a big word, licentious, or to perhaps make it a little bit more simple, immoral. There was lots of sexual immorality in their culture. We can identify with this, can we not? Our culture increasingly has the lid coming off. I believe that our culture has always been sexually immoral. Because of the advent of the internet in particular, the predominance of other kinds of media, the lid is coming off. Cultural restraint is going away. And what was always decrepit and evil underneath is coming out. We can identify with this. Paul had taught the people in Corinth, either directly or indirectly, that they were to live singularly for the glory of God, (coughs) that they were to flee sexual temptation. And so they had come to the conclusion that perhaps it was better that they weren't even married anymore and that they didn't participate in sexual relations with their spouses. So Paul, in the first 16 verses of this chapter, addresses that question. And he says to them, because most of you are married, I'm just summarizing here, because most of you are married, you should stay married and you should not deprive your spouse of sexual intimacy. But in verse 25, which is where we will begin our time together today, Paul seems to pick up another matter. It's related to the first, but it's more specific. It's not so much about sexual relations. It has more to do with whether or not marriage is a good idea at all. So for the most part, in the first 16 verses of the chapter, Paul is addressing those who are already married and whether or not they should continue in those marriages and participate in sexual relationship in the marriage. And now beginning in verse 25, he primarily changes the topic, or at least the the tone a bit, though he is still addressing married or unmarried people thinking about marriage, and wants to address whether or not marriage is a good idea at all. He has already said prior to this in the beginning context of the chapter in verse 6, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about being single. Most modern evangelical scholars would say that at one time, Paul had likely been married. He was a leading Pharisee. It's possible that he was even 
part of their ruling council and was almost unheard of in Jewish culture, especially if you were a religious leader, not to be married. We're guessing a little bit here. We're reading between the lines a bit. We're comparing Scripture with Scripture. But most likely, at one time or another, Paul had been married. What happened to his wife? We don't know. Assuming he had one, which is an assumption, perhaps she had passed away. Perhaps, if he had one, she had not passed away, but she had left him. But regardless, at this state, Paul is not married, and he is not seeking to be remarried or married at all. And so he's saying to them, I wish that everybody was just like me. In verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and the widows, those who had formerly been married, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. So in Paul's mind, it was better to, to be unmarried, not to become unmarried, not to deliberately do so, but if you were unmarried, to remain so. So he's already discussed that. He's already given his opinion. And now in verse 25, he says, Now concerning the betrothed, and let's pause here for just a moment. The betrothed were virgins, people who had never been married, but were likely on that path. They had probably been matched together with another one and likely were about to get married. In the original language, these were, these were females, but I think the principle extends to all. If you are a person who is on the path to marriage, Paul had a word for them because Again, the Corinthians wanted to know, what about those of us who are about to get married, that are on that path? So, with that in mind, Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Jesus hadn't said anything specifically about these people. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy mercy, is trustworthy. So again, just to be clear about our context, Paul is saying to these people, because they gave him a question, They offered a question to him. What what about us? What about those of us who are headed toward marriage? Paul says, Jesus didn't seem to say anything about this, but but I have an opinion. So it's it's not on the level of the words of Jesus himself, but, but I think I'm trustworthy, therefore you should probably listen to me. After all, they had written to him in the first place. So now he gives his opinion. I think, verse 26, that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Therefore, unmarried. Are you bound to a wife? Well, now he addresses the married people. Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So again, both parties are addressed. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, that those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, 
Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his own heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So, let's talk a bit about these verses, and we're going to spend our time especially in verses 29 through 35 because we won't have time to deal with the whole text. I think verses 29 through 31 put before us this important truth, and that is that in light of the coming age, we should all live with singular devotion to God. In light of the coming age, we should all live with singular devotion to God. Paul says in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. He says in verse 26 that the Corinthians were under a present distress. We don't know exactly what that was. There was likely something going on in Corinth that was pressing in upon the church and reminding them that this world was not their home, that it was an evil place, and that saints don't quite feel at home in this place. And though we can't completely recreate what was going on in Corinth at the time, their present distress, Paul makes it clear to them that the appointed time was growing short, as we just saw in verse 29. I think we can summarize it and bring it forward into our context by saying this. In the grand scheme of things, the grand scheme of God's plan for this world and the eternal ages, this, this age will end soon. Now, does that mean that like in 2017, maybe in the spring, that Jesus is going to return for His church? I don't know the answer to that. Does it mean that we might go another 2,000 years as we have since Christ was crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven? I, I really have no idea. Perhaps those of you who think you know, you don't know. But in the grand scheme of things, whether it's soon or whether it's a long time to come, the appointed time is growing short. And I think this is basically what Paul means. Christ has set in motion the renewal of all things. Satan has been damaged. A death blow has not finally come, but as the old hymn says, lo, his doom is sure. And because the dragon, the serpent that we call Satan, is damaged, he is perhaps even more dangerous now. The 2,000 years of church history since Christ have not been kind, by and large, to the people of God. Our world is not getting better. I don't know necessarily that it is worse, but it is evil. And as we've already established today, the lid in our culture seems to be coming off, and the evil underbelly is being revealed, to mix my metaphors. And so... For the Corinthians, and for us today, 
We live under present distress. It could be general things. The fact that we have our own sinful hearts. The fact that we live in a sinful and lawless society. A society that perhaps at one time was postured toward Judeo-Christian ideals, but is no longer. In our particular context, the culture wars are heating up more and more. We do not know if our children will enjoy the same freedoms that we once enjoyed. I think, though it is incredibly difficult for us to do this, if we were to read this together as believers huddled together in a back room in Syria today, we would read this much differently. Corinth was under distress, and Paul told them that the end was coming. It was sure. We live under general and specific distress, and it could increase. What is to come in our culture? That's not what this sermon is about, but we don't know. A 9-11 with much worse severity could happen here. Our religious freedoms could be taken away. It could be that in a generation, some of the things that we believe that the Scriptures teach could be classified as hate speech. People in my profession perhaps could no longer practice. It could be that we might not be able to meet in a place like this. I don't know if that's coming. I I wouldn't be surprised. I don't say it to be an alarmist. That's not my personality and It's not my trajectory, but it's possible. I think perhaps the thing that could really reveal a lot about the hearts of God's people and bring us under great distress is a total economic meltdown. We are not beyond that. We had a little blip back in 2007, 2008. It could happen again. It it could be worse. If Americans and American Christians have any God, it perhaps is this, that is the God of comfort. What happens if comfort is taken away? Not just money specifically, but comfort, security. What if, what if that was taken away? What would that reveal about us? What, what kind of pressures would that put us under? Distress has been experienced by the people of God before. It will be experienced again. And especially at the very end when Jesus does wrap everything up, I believe things will get worse in one way or another. But we know that despite specific or general distress, which all of us live under in one way or another, the shadows of distress seem to always be looming over us. We believe that that it will get better one day. Not the present form of this world. I don't mean the economy. I don't mean religious freedom. I don't mean an increased level of morality here in our culture. I don't mean that. But it will get better one day because the king will come back. He'll refashion everything. Even the globe itself will be more beautiful, more in keeping with his original design. In fact, it will be better than the original design because Jesus will bring his capital city down here and we will celebrate together with him forever in perfect worship with no sin, not even the possibility of sin. That is coming Thank God. And because it's coming and because we live in current distress, whether specific or general, Paul wants us to understand that that we should live a singular devotion to God because even if we live till we're 75 or 85, this world is still coming to an end. 
I hit 40 this week. I don't know. I guess I'm about halfway done. It's sort of sobering. I don't feel physically different. New aches and pains didn't somehow set upon me on Friday. But mentally, I feel differently. Life is changing. You take stock of where you've been. You have new dreams and plans and ideas of what should come in the remaining time that you have. What does Paul say to all of us? Whether married or unmarried, again, to come back to the text, we are to live with singular devotion to God. What does he say to all of us, whether married or unmarried? Well, he says to those of you who are married, live like you're not. I wonder how these troubled Corinthian people, who often made bad decisions, read that. Then he says to those who are unmarried, you are to live for the glory of God as well. We'll get to that in just a moment. If you're married, at least metaphorically, live like you're not. Then he says to those who are mourning, those who are mourning over their distress, to, to live as though life might be getting more difficult. You think everything is okay? It may well not be. Don't be rejoicing. If, if you are used to going into the marketplace and buying, live as though you don't have much, verse 30. Those of you who are dealing with the world, perhaps in a, a market kind of sense, a, a business kind of sense, or those of you who are maybe culturally savvy, don't live that way anymore. And again, this is metaphorical, but Paul gives his reason, the end of verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. Jesus said something similar to this in the Gospel of Luke. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be his, my disciple. Jesus, like Paul, was not saying you should literally hate your wife. He wasn't saying that you should literally despise your children or your own life. He was making a point by using exaggeration or hyperbole. Your love for me, Jesus was saying, and like Paul here, your love for God should be so intense, so singular, that everything else is second. I hesitate to use the phrase pales in comparison because we could come to wrong conclusions about that. The Corinthians had. They had come to wrong conclusions about whether or not they should love their present spouse. That wasn't what Paul wanted. We know that because of what he says elsewhere in passages like Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's an intense love. That's not a paling in comparison kind of love. But what he's saying is that God should always be first, very much first. That's how I would put this. Your love for God should be first in rank. Why? Because he made you and because he rescued you. And one day, you will spend time with him. We call that eternity. And because we know of the teaching of Jesus... You will live in the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king of that kingdom, and you will no longer be married. There is coming a day when singleness will be 
the norm. But you will be with the bridegroom, Jesus, and you will not lack emotional stability, relational intimacy at all. And because that is the character, the nature of the coming age, where you will live in singular devotion to Jesus as a single person, if I can say, live for Him now with primary devotion. Paul wants to make sure that the people in Corinth who are currently married live for God with all that they were worth. Their love for Jesus should be first in rank. And so I say to you before I move on to verses 32 through 35, which I want to emphasize here at the final moments of our time together today. If you are married today, you know how difficult this can be. Paul will come back to these ideas in verses 32 through 35. But I want to say to you, because it is difficult to live with singular devotion when you have so much devotion to those around you, remember who your Lord is. Remember what He has done for you. Your wife, your husband, your children, it's easy to make them into idols. We can take anything that's good and turn it into something bad. We can take anything that is a blessing and turn it into an object of worship. So before we move on, I say to myself, I say to you, your wife, your husband, your children, they are not your Savior. They are not your hope. And though you should love them with an unbreakable intensity, your love for them should not compare to your love for God. And I will say to you very practically, because when I say that, here's my objection mentally. Like, I just said that out loud, but there's something else going on in my head. And if you're like me, here's the objection in my head. But how does that work? Because we've just come out of a couple weeks of teaching where I said to you, wives, husbands, love each other with with great intensity. And and the comparative measure of that is Jesus' love for his church. Well, that's like the best love ever. So how can I have a love for God that's first in rank and still love my spouse with and my children with with this unbreakable intensity? I, I think that the only way. To, to live in that tension, and I, I hate the word balance. I think balance is a cop-out. The way to live in that tension of loving God supremely and loving our, our families with, with great unbreakable intensity is to spend time examining the heart of God. And, and what I mean by that is you have to nurture your understanding of what love for God and love for people look like by spending time together in His Word and talking back to Him. It has to be a dialogue. The only one who can change the way that you think and change the way that you feel, the way you look at the world, is God. And he will do that exclusively through his word. And then you work that out in head and heart by talking back to him. What I'm saying very practically is the only way to live in the tension of singular devotion to God, married together, unintended, with with unbreakable devotion to your family is by understanding the heart of God. And the heart of God is revealed in His Word. 
And through his word, the spirit changes you. So I think very practically it looks like this. Today's Sunday. Holy Spirit, today's Sunday. It's October 2nd, 2016. You know I struggle with devotion to my family. You know, even more importantly, I struggle with devotion to my God. So I'm coming to your word today, and I want you to help me see where I lack. I want you to see I want you to help me see how great my God is and what he has done for me. And I want you to change my affections for him. I want you to give me a singular devotion to my creator and to my king and to my savior. Likewise, I want you to help me see that because I'm devoted to him, I am to reflect that same kind of magnificent grace to my family. So help me work that out too. And by your grace, because I can't do that, help me keep these things together married together in harmonious tension. I don't know how else to do it. So because our love for God is to be first in rank and simultaneously in tension, we are to live with devotion, unbreakable love for our families. The only way we can do that is by having the Spirit of God change us through the Word of God. And so we come dependently and ask Him to to help us live in that tension where God is first in rank And people are second, but still incredibly important. So I say to you, primarily those of you who are married, in light of the coming age, all of us should live with singular devotion to God. But now the thrust of our time together today, verses 32 through 35. Singleness affords a lifestyle that, if used redemptively, can uniquely seek God and bless others. Singleness, verses 32 through 35, affords a lifestyle that, if used redemptively, can uniquely seek God and bless others. Let's read these verses again. I want you to be free, verse 32, from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I remember when we moved to Columbus to to begin the planting of this church. We didn't know anybody. Our church down near Cincinnati had agreed to support us financially for quite a while, my family as well as the logistical, functional side of a church plant. And that all sounded well and good, like we weren't going to go hungry right away, but there were no people, and so I was afraid. I'm an anxious person, person by nature, but I believe God put me in a situation to reveal just how anxious I was. I remember for, for many months, basically nothing happened. I would chase every conceivable lead. I've told some of you this story before, but it bears repeating and will make my point. The very first semi-lukewarm contact I had went like this. Whitney has an aunt and uncle that live out in California that, frankly, she doesn't know incredibly well. At one time, her uncle had been um, with a campus ministry at Ohio State many, many years ago. He had led a guy to Christ. That guy had gotten married and had kids and moved to, like, Nebraska. That guy's daughter married a guy, and they had moved back to Columbus. So here's how this went. Whitney's uncle called us and said, 
A guy that I discipled many, many years ago um, had a daughter. She married a guy. They've moved back to Columbus. I think they're Christians. You should call them. And I said, well, I'm desperate. That's what I'll do. And so I did. I called this guy. And then we got together for lunch. And that was the first family that came to our Bible study. And they were the only family for for quite a while. And for for a long time, I, I worried that this idea of planting a church in northern Columbus would work. I looked for other jobs for a while because I was scared. And I wasn't just scared because of me, and this is my point. I was scared because I was married. I was scared because our first son had just been born. I used to think to myself, what if we get a year and a half into this and our supporting church sees that there's no traction and cuts it off? What am I going to do then? You know, it's like, you know, people aren't banging down my door, you know, some guy with a a Bible degree to come do finance for them. They don't want me to to manage their company. Like, I don't have those those skills. I don't have that training. If if, if this doesn't work, what am I going to do? And having a wife and having my first child only amplified those fears. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. If If you're married, and if you're married with kids, you're anxious about things in ways you didn't used to be, or at least they're amplified in ways that they didn't used to be. And even if it's not finances, it can be other things. Let's say the finances are in great order, but you're not getting along with your spouse. You're not connected anymore. It's very easy when the children come, especially when you have multiple children, it's easy to, to lose each other because you're focused so much on their activities and, and their needs. If you have a child with special needs, we have children that God has blessed us with in this church that we get to take care of. We have, we have special needs. How much does that dominate your thinking as a mother or father? Just getting them to doctor's appointments and, and to therapists, trying to think about what's best for them and, and positioning your life in such a way to take care of them. As your children get older, you're no longer just concerned about their behavior, you're concerned about their hearts. And what if after a while their hearts don't seem to be directed toward Jesus? You worry for them, you, you pray for them night and day. If you're married, and if you're married with children especially, you have lots of people to think about all the time. You're responsible for them. If you're not married... Even though you have people in your life that are important to you, you don't have those same anxieties. Paul has already said prior to this, we read the verses together earlier, beginning back in verse 6, that that he wanted people to be like him. He wasn't married. Think about the things Paul went through. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a short list of all the things that had happened to him. He'd been shipwrecked, almost drowned, beaten, arrested, left for dead? How could Paul possibly have engaged in such a lifestyle if he knew he had a wife back in Jerusalem and little mouths to feed back there waiting for him? He couldn't have done that. Paul underwent great exploits for the kingdom of God because he was single. Paul was an interesting guy. Most of us are not called to live like Paul. Most of you will not float on a plank in the Mediterranean Sea because you've been shipwrecked. Most of you will not be stoned 
most of you, if church history is correct, will not be beheaded. But that's what Paul had been called to. He had been called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And he could not have led such a life in such a way, at least in his mind, his way of thinking, if he was married. Well, let's, let's come down the mountain a little bit. So if Paul's at sort of the peak of the mountain of, of great Christian virtue and sacrifice, most of us are never going to be that. But God has called us to live for him. God has called us to live for his glory, to reflect his glory, and, and to bless other people. And when you're married, when you're married with kids, it's, 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 it's harder to do that in some senses. Now, it's possible to be single a lifestyle that affords a unique opportunity to you and not use it redemptively. I know people like this. I know people that are so focused on their singleness that it takes away all devotion to God. Likewise, it's possible if you're single to have other mistresses, or I don't know what the word for a a male mistress is, if you're a female, it's possible to have the, the male version of that with your job. You, you may not literally have a man or a woman to which you are devoted in, a, in an appropriate way, but you, you might have a job like that. You might have financial concerns like that. You might have, have leisure hobbies like that. As I've already said, even the best things. Work is a good thing. Leisure and hobbies are good things, but if if viewed inappropriately, if, if devotion to those things becomes inappropriate, those things are not good for you. So it's possible to be single and not use your singleness redemptively. So what Paul is saying here is you have a unique opportunity as a single person only if you use this unique opportunity redemptively. What does Paul want them to do? What does Paul want you to do if you are a single person? He wants you to live with singular devotion to God. He says this at the end of verse 35. He wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. And this will be for their benefit. In other words, he wants them to be happy. He hints at that in verse 40. A woman who remains unmarried will be happier, Paul says. Well, comparing that with what he says in verse 35, it will be to your benefit. You'll be happy if you live in such a fashion. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters today who are currently single, whether you remain so or not, use this time. Use your unique opportunity redemptively. I ask you to consider whether or not in your singleness you sometimes take other things, good things, and have inappropriate devotion to those things and thereby lose your opportunity to use this unique opportunity redemptively. What, what can you do as a single person that perhaps a married person can't quite do? Let me give you some practical ideas. You might be able to serve other people better. Right now, and my family cannot maintain this pace, but right now we have sports six days a week. That's a bit of a confession to you. We're overdoing it right now. 
And, and those six days of sports out of seven per week are only two of my children. We're not eating a lot of family meals together. Right now, just despite our strange circumstances, um, we, we can't schedule things out very far. If somebody were to say to us, hey, can, can we get together this Friday and hang out? The answer is no. We can't do that right now. And I don't like how we're living right now. We, we have some changes we have to make, and God willing, we'll soon. But because of, of what we're doing as, as a family of six now, it's hard. It's hard to schedule things out very far. It's, it's hard to, to make quick spur-of-the-moment decisions. We, we've lost our ability, by and large, to be a spur-of-the-moment family. And even on a somewhat normal night, there's homework, bedtime routines, and we're so exhausted from all that, we just want to go to sleep. If you're single, you don't have those, those same kinds of pressures. It's a little more difficult for people in, in my circumstance, and a lot of you are in that same circumstance, to do spur-of-the-moment things, to be as thoughtful about other people as we would like to be. If you're single, you have more opportunity to do that if you use your singleness redemptively. So practically, if you're a naturally thoughtful person, think about other people. Pull out your church directory and and think about the 170-something other people that are part of this church family. How are they doing? Who, Who haven't you seen in a while? And then pray for them. And try to pray intelligently, not just generally. And if you don't know how to pray, contact them and and tell them you're praying for them. Unfortunately, even in a good church like ours, that's an uncommon text to get. I was thinking about you last night, and I would like to really deliberately pray for you in the coming week. How can I do that? Boy, that's an encouraging text, right? And then don't just think about them. And don't just pray for them. Go act. Maybe for those of us who, are, who have kids coming out of the seams, like our lives are like this overabundant shopping cart and we can barely keep everything in there right now, come help. Join in. Spend time. Those of you perhaps who are single at this point can, can use your time in, in ways that married people just can't or at least have a difficult time doing with regularity. Also, though, the nuclear family and the church family are not the same thing. They are not. You can have a unique devotion to this family in a way that perhaps a married person cannot. That is to say, you can look at your brothers and sisters around you in a totally appropriate fashion in a very devoted, intimate way. Brotherhood, sisterhood can be dear to you. But the only way that it will be is if you foster it in ways that I've already described and I think more. So I say to you today, if you are single, if that is where God currently has you, that's a good place to be. Because in doing so, you have time to spend 
time nurturing your relationship with God and with other people in ways that married people cannot quite do. And whether you remain single or not, because some of you won't, some of you currently single listening to me today won't, and as we know from this text, that's okay too. But while you are in this state, that God has you in His wisdom, in His goodness, use your time redemptively. So I I call you today to reflect upon how you are viewing this state of life at this point. And I call you during this time, long or short though it may be, to use this time redemptively to bless other people. Ask God's Spirit to reveal to you ways that you can love other people. Because ultimately, when you love God, you reflect that by loving other people. We, we could say, without a great deal of hesitation, that one of the best ways you show your love for God is by loving other people. And because you have this unique opportunity, you can use that opportunity redemptively to do just that. I want to come back to those of us who are married for just a moment. We must not use our busyness as an excuse to not pay attention to those who are not married. That is to say, there are people in our midst who are unmarried, who perhaps often are lonely, who have many nights at home by themselves and and wish that they weren't alone. That does not necessarily mean that they want a wife or a husband. I want to say that to you. That can be a misunderstanding about single people. They may not be lonely and craving a spouse. They might be lonely just in human contact. So if you're a naturally thoughtful person, you can walk away with this on your mind. If you're not, perhaps you should pull out your pen or Evernote right now and and jot this down. Who in our church family is single that you should bless in coming days? And it could be by text, it could be by phone call, it could be by note. Those are wonderful things, and you should do that. But it should probably be time, human contact for a meal, maybe guys getting together for lunch, ladies for coffee during the week, or maybe in your home. Have them over and do the family stuff. You don't have to pretend you're all single for a night. Bring them into your lifestyle. Let them see what it's like. Include them. Let them watch bedtime routine. Watch a movie with them. Let them hang out with you. You're taking your family to watch your kid play soccer? Take them with you. So you see, this text is is not just for the unmarried, though that is Paul's thrust. It is for all of us to live not only with mutual understanding, which is very, very important, but mutual thoughtfulness. Let me say that again. I want us to live together with, with mutual understanding, but perhaps what's even more important is mutual thoughtfulness, to pay attention to those around us and to love them with, with deep love. Let me give you a couple corollary texts that you might take time to turn to for further study. We won't take time to turn there and read them today. Matthew 19, Jesus is questioned about the appropriate reasons for divorce After he gives them, they're very stringent, he is asked, well, should anybody be married then if it's not so easy to get out of your marriage? And Jesus comments there in Matthew chapter 19 that there are some people who have been called to live 
a single life for the glory of God and His kingdom. And because we've already read these verses today, I want to commend to you again Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. We call this the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, that's coming at the end. And because we know that Jesus also said during His earthly ministry that one day there will be a time when none of us are married anymore, but there's this marriage supper thing. Well, that's kind of ironic. So when it's all said and done and we're, and we're with Him, we, we won't be married anymore But in a metaphorical sense, we are betrothed to the Messiah. A greater marriage is coming. And that day and age, whether you were married in this life or not married in this life, we will all together with one voice and one singular devotion have a greater marriage, a greater betrothal to Jesus Christ Himself. So therefore, Because of what's coming, we should live in the here and now with mutual understanding and thoughtfulness. Paul says at the end of his letter to the Roman church, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. May he grant all of us today the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take your word, secure our hearts to Jesus, married or unmarried today. May we have a singular devotion to him. May those of us who are married love him first. And give us wisdom and discernment and grace to live in the tension between loving Him and loving our families. Holy Spirit, to those who are not married today, encourage them. May they use their unique opportunity that their singleness affords redemptively to to love God and to love others. And may the single and may the married live together with mutual understanding and thoughtfulness in harmony with one voice for the glory of Jesus. And and Jesus, please come soon and bring us the better marriage where we'll enjoy you forever because then we'll be really happy. Do it soon, we pray. And while we wait, grant all of us in whatever state we find ourselves to live for you and for the good of each other. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.